Welcome to the Aurelium Future Strategy Podcast, the definitive podcast for strategic insights in the world of professional services. This podcast is more than just a discussion forum. It's a strategic compass for firms and professionals seeking to excel in today's dynamic business environment and prepare for the uncertainties of tomorrow. Each episode, we delve into the most compelling aspects of future strategy. From the impact of generative AI and disruptive technologies to innovative approaches across various professional sectors. At the Aurelium Future Strategy Podcast, we bring together the brightest minds in industry and academia, offering you a unique blend of pragmatic insights and expert solutions. Our aim is to empower you with the knowledge and strategies that are both forward-thinking and actionable. Whether you're looking to understand the latest trends, enhance your firm's strategic planning, or gain a competitive edge in your field, this podcast is your essential guide. Tune in to the Aurelium Future Strategy Podcast for unparalleled perspectives that will transform the way you think about strategy and the future of professional services. Welcome back to the second episode of the Aurelium Future Strategy Podcast, which is very exciting. But in saying that, I want to make a quick disclaimer to all of our listeners. Please bear with us. We're learning. We know it may not be perfect just yet, but we are working very hard behind the scenes to get it nice and crisp for you. On that note, John, a big call out to Gavin and the guys at Solid Gold, uh, who've really been a great help to us, giving us the guidance we need. As you say, we are babes in the wood when it comes to this, but we're learning quickly. And another shout out that I feel like we definitely have to make, and I wish we had made it in the first episode, is for Rosie Carr. She is a fantastic actress. She did both our intro and conclusion, and she's been absolutely amazing in helping us really get this off the ground. Diving then into the topic of the second episode is really building from episode one. We looked at the inflection point facing law firms in the sector at large, and we discussed broadly the boundaries of LLMs and Gen AI. I think though today we really need to look more towards the real implications of this, the boots on the ground situation as it were. And when I say this, I want to talk about the shifting demands and expectations from clients. I want to look at the partnership model, which really I'm I'm going to use the word pervasive, but broadly it's seen across the sector. But before any of that, I think it's very, very important that we look at the strategic considerations and really the potential that the industry has towards asymmetric disruption. So Rob, I'm going to throw it over to you to just sort of build from that. To preface the conversation that we're going to have today, it's worth noting that a lot of what we're going to be talking about is of application to the professional service sector generally, but there is certainly some element of what we're going to be talking about today that is specific to law firms. So as as you're listening to the conversation, it's worth just noting that some elements may be very specific to law firms and may not necessarily be a broader application, but the conversation itself is of general application. I think it's worth just noting, last week we did a podcast and we identified the fact that professional service firms and clients generally, corporates generally, need to be very careful of seeing generative AI at a point of time and highlighting the flaws. And we had made the point that it is improving so quickly and so dramatically that one has to consider what is coming down the pipe when looking at your strategy and so far as the application of Gen AI is concerned. 
And this morning you brought to my attention, and it is quite extraordinary, bearing in mind that ChatGPT4 has only been around for less than 12 months, but Google's Gemini 1.5 can now identify specific clauses 99.7% of the time in a sea of 7 million words. And, and let's just put that in context. That is like the entire works of Shakespeare eight times over. And it will identify a specific clause that it is looking for 99.7% of the time. Now, just bear that in mind when we talk about research and analysis of documents and analysis of data. That is an extraordinary statistic. And again, we just need to remind ourselves of the fact that substantial large language models only arrived in November 2022. And yet we are now having a conversation about something that is that accurate. I think something there that you discuss, which is, is quite interesting, is, is again that speed. And really something that I, I want to explore here is the rather slow adaption that um, traditional law firm partnership models in particular have. And I know that it is something that we discussed last week, but I want to want to dig into that a bit more. Rob, from your experience in the field, how is it that you perceive the threat posed now by the sort of new technology-focused entrance to the legal sector's traditional balance, as it were? You mentioned there Gemini and how incredibly powerful that is and, and how much that's advanced in such a short period of time. So if you consider then the rapid adoption and rapid development of generative AI technologies, entities like alternate legal service providers, the big four firms expanding into the legal service sector, and really adjacent professional service firms, and even then pure tech companies, they all seem much better placed to adopt a high-risk, high-reward strategy in their quest to gain market share and to erode market share from the traditional entities that have populated it. How is it that you think then these dynamics compel traditional law firms or should compel them to reevaluate and possibly adjust their partnership models and competitive strategies to not only ensure continued growth, but at this point, even to start considering whether it's a battle of survival? I don't want to come across as being sort of a doomsayer, but I do think that one is often going to be talking about a case of survival. I think that what we're going to see over the course of the next two to three years is a fragmentation of the sector, professional service sector. I think you're going to see digital firms, entirely digital firms coming to the fore. I think you're going to see the alternative service providers with their agility. They will accelerate past some of the law firms, the traditional law firms, traditional professional service firms. And I think that we're going to see an increasing segmentation of the market where you will have firms formatted and structured very differently. I think you will see firms that actually hive off and take out elements of their business to be done very differently through the application of technology. And the final point that I would make is I think that we are going to see increasing investment into the sector um, and increasing acquisition in the sector, the professional services sector, by private equity um, and venture capital funds. If you see the sort of trajectory of the way that PE in particular has moved into the professional services sector sort of from 2020 onwards, I think that is a trend that we're going to see accelerate heavily. And the traditional partnership model on any of those arguments or in relation to any of those points is under threat. And not under threat in the sense that the traditional partnership model itself is going to have to be abolished entirely, but it is going to have to change. 
And it's going to have to change for a number of reasons. One is it cannot move currently at the pace, at sufficient pace to deal with the change, because ultimately every partner within the partnership as an owner of the business has a say in strategy. That is very difficult when you're talking about 300, 400, 1,000 partners. That's a very difficult model to move quickly. Secondly, I think you're going to find that the partnership model has to reformat itself or reformulate itself to deal with those components of the existing business that should be done differently. They should leverage technology to improve efficiency and the way in which the work is done. And that will have an impact on the relationship between partners within the same business. If my business is insulated against the impact of generative AI, and I'm still able to bill 2,000 hours a year um, through the application of my own intellectual property or capital without technology impacting that, then my relationship with my partner who is in a situation where 75% of his or her practice is now being done by generative AI or some form of technology that creates some tension and the partnership model is going to have to flex to recognize that. Then if you go down a layer, you've obviously got the partnership model, which is a highly leveraged model. And no doubt we're going to discuss that in more detail. But you have a raft of junior lawyers that are there to provide resource capacity to the partnership. And again, generative AI is going to require or demand that that model itself be reviewed to work out which components of the business need to flex to change. Do we need as many juniors as we currently have? Do the juniors need to be doing different things? And finally, I would say that the other element of the partnership model that is going to have to be looked at very, very carefully and very quickly is the makeup of the skill and expertise that you've got in the business. The traditional partnership model operates on the basis largely that the partners are the ones that make the decisions. They are the ones that know the business. They know exactly what they're doing. They will make the strategic decisions. Very often, experts that are brought into the business are brought in purely to support the partners to deliver the business rather than direct, guide, develop strategy. And I think that model is going to change because the skill set that the future fit professional service firm is going to require is going to be fundamentally different. And let's be frank, if I am a highly skilled, strategic thinking expert in the application of generative AI and data analysis and the like, I will not want to work for an organization that says, we'll pay you your salary, but you do as we tell you. And all we want you to do is take your existing expertise and make absolutely certain that it doesn't change the way we're doing business. That's not a sustainable model. So all of those elements mean that the firms that move faster to adapt to the opportunity, and let's be honest, this is an opportunity, it's not just a challenge, but to adapt to the opportunities and challenges, they are the ones that will break away, they are the ones that will ultimately be successful, and the competitors that are slower to adapt, slower to change, the gap between them will simply grow so fast that it will be very difficult to close the gap. That's a a long way of saying that there are going to be fundamental changes. The partnership model itself is going to have to change. My view certainly is that it needs to become more corporate, give it the flexibility, give it the autonomy or management, the autonomy and independence they need to run the strategies that are needed. 
Um, but all of those suggest that the partnership model is certainly going to have to flex, if not change completely. For my fellow theory buffs, I think something that's very interesting in the sector is the fact that it is clearly challenging the traditional Nash equilibrium that you see in game theory and the positioning of Gen AI in relation to the the sector really has created almost the perfect race condition. So just keep that in mind if you if you are a fan of game theory and, and economic theory more broadly speaking. Rob, turning to what you were speaking about, at the end there you mentioned making it more corporate. Discuss a little bit with me here about the what is it in your mind that sort of is encapsulated under this this banner of corporatization? Because I think a lot of lawyers and, and particularly those in leadership positions will say, but law is an entirely different beast. You hear a whole bunch of analogies about what it's like to run law firms, what it's like to be a lawyer. I think one that always stands out and one that we've discussed many a time is running a law firm is like herding cats. And I think that's something that's quite interesting because really what you're doing here is you're suggesting that, well, yes, you are brilliant at what you do, but it may be time to look towards passing the reins or at least elements of the running of it to those who are subject matter experts. And I think something that's that's in particular there going to be incredibly challenging is that that represents a threat to the established monarchy as it were, in the legal sector. So what is it that you think law firms can do to really start to drive forward this culture shift? And then in doing so, how is it that you think this will impact that leverage system that you mentioned earlier? Because I think all of these tie into one another. And for some of our listeners who may not be too familiar with the legal sector, could you explain that leverage system a little bit before you get going? Leverage is simply it's a way in which you develop capacity, allows you to do the work, theoretically allows you to do the work that your client is giving you in a way that is more effective because you can push the work down to the lower levels within the organization. In other words, the more junior lawyers uh, that can obviously do the work or some of the work at a lower rate. So what the client gets is your expertise as the leading lawyer in that sector but some of the research, some of the technical work that is required is done by the lawyers in your team, um, and they might charge out at you know $300 an hour, whereas you charge out as the expert, you charging out at $1,000 or $2,000 an hour. So there's a blended rate, there is a benefit, and obviously it allows you to do more work because you've got a raft of people sitting below you that can actually do the work for you. And I think it's important that we do make the point that the Leverage model is not one that is necessarily followed uniformly across the world. So as an example, in the United States, most firms there operate on the basis of a one to two, in other words, one partner to two associates, whereas in Europe and parts of Europe and certainly Australia and South Africa, um, it's more along the lines of one partner to three or four, in some instances, eight associates that provide that capacity to the business. So the leverage model's differ, but that's really the essence of the leverage model. And when you then sort of ask yourself the question, well, okay, if, if that's the current model, if that's been the model, and it has been the model for probably well over 100 years now, and technology is going to now enable the firm and the clients giving the work to the firm to have some of the work that was traditionally done by those younger lawyers supporting the expert done by technology, what does that actually mean? And if, as an example, if you just go back to the Gemini 1.5 accuracy rate on a single phrase, and you apply the logic of that to research, 
that would otherwise have been done by younger lawyers. And you can now have a technology like Gemini 1.5 run its digital eye over a host of information to track and research on particular topics. And it can return the answer in you know a minute, two minutes, 30 seconds, whatever it is. What impact is that going to have on the associates and the junior lawyers that were previously doing the work? You can't ignore it. And you cannot suggest that that is not going to impact the amount of work that is available to those junior lawyers, or indeed the type of work that is available to them, or indeed the way in which those junior lawyers are doing their work. Now, presumably, they will be using technology in a way that was not previously available to them, and they will be able to turn around work a lot quicker than they had previously, which means potentially at least, rather than having three lawyers support me as an expert, I only need one lawyer to support me as an expert. So there are impacts on that. So there will undoubtedly be impacts on the leverage model. Um, you know, the junior lawyers are going to have to be upskilled to actually use the technology. But I think it's highly unlikely that one is going to end in a situation where you will continue to need the same number of lawyers in a law firm delivering the same work that is currently being delivered. So if you currently have 100 hours of work and you have 10 lawyers that are delivering that 100 hours of work and the 100 hours doesn't change, the nature of the work doesn't change, but you apply the technology I think it's very unlikely that you're going to still need those 10 lawyers. In fact, I think it's likely you will probably need two to three lawyers. Of course, there are opportunities to find new work. You can leverage the technology to make yourselves experts in the technology and data security and privacy and all of those issues. But there is a limit to how much of that work is available. So short point is it will have an impact. Getting back to your question about corporatization and why I think moving towards a more corporate model is highly relevant and is something that firms need to think about, is for the number of reasons that it allows the business to flex more, it gives them more agility, it allows management to actually deal with strategy in a more focused way rather than worrying about the individual interests of all 900 partners. They can actually look at the best interest of the firm and all its stakeholders. It allows the business to look at its existing um, book of business and decide which of those elements it needs to retain in-house, which, as an example, it can take out and put into subsidiaries, uh, which it can actually apply technology to right across the board and reduce the number of people that it has working for it. It allows it to look at far more carefully and logically at the resource allocation that it has in the business and obviously, it also makes it that much easier for it to engage with clients around topics that clients wanted to be looking at. So corporatization is a term that I use. I'm not suggesting it has to necessarily be a company. You can have a corporate structure in a partnership, but it's the mindset around the corporate structure. It's the mindset around the strategic application of the corporate mindset that I think partnerships need to be looking at. I think this is a good place to have a quick break to let some of our listeners just process that because I am very aware that some of the things that we are discussing and, and saying and supporting is still viewed as slightly controversial. I think the term you're looking for is heresy. <laughs> Who doesn't want to be in the business of some heresy? So let's quickly take a break. And when we get back, I want to look at the client side because it's all good and well focusing on the law firm itself, but we definitely cannot ignore the ever important clients. 
Welcome back. I hope everyone has cooled off, let our words wash over them and have given them some thought. Jumping then straight into the client side, Rob, you mentioned quite a lot there. I'm going to quickly nitpick some of the some of the finer points there. If, say, in the perfect world, the technology is implemented as it should be, as it could be, and it draws down time, it draws down cost, suddenly the law firm is a hell of a lot more streamlined. That's going to change client demands quite rapidly. And it's not like AI is some hidden secret thing that law firms can now implement without clients knowing about it. When I say it's everywhere, it is everywhere. We are but one of how many podcasts discussing it. The news plastered all over that. It's all over social media. Wherever you look, AI is there. It's not something that the law firms can hide from. So how is it that you think it's going to change client demands? And how is it that you think that law firms need to adapt to that? Because it's going to be very difficult. And it's something that they have been doing up till now in many cases, but I don't think they'll be able to continue doing this. And that is to say, well, we're going to keep our rates the same. Demand is flatlined. And in this case, that that demand versus rates curve is going to go absolutely haywire because of this. How is it that law firms navigate this? Yeah, and what law firms have to be, professional services firms, never mind just law firms, need to be very careful of is that age-old problem of hubris. We are doing so well. We have done so well. We are so successful. We are financially very successful. There is no reason for us to change and let's not change. If, if that is an approach that is taken by professional service uh, firms and by their management, that is a recipe for disaster. So that is not something that they can overlook. I think the, the reality is that the commercial model adopted by professional service firms, which is leverage billable hour, rate times hour, annual rate increases and the like, that is going to have to fundamentally change. I think that the way in which they commercially engage with their clients will have to be restructured and it will have to be restructured very quickly. I don't think that that is something that the professional services sector is dealing with as effectively at the moment as it should be. I think they've been pretty slow off the block to recognize the fact that this is not a technology play. This is an efficiency and ultimately it's a commercial play. And in fact, the issues that they need to be thinking about are the commercial model, the structure of the business, the resource play and the like, and how they engage with clients in a way that the clients both understand and are willing to accept. And let me just quote a very recent example, which sort of highlights the disconnect between law firms, and let's deal specifically with law firms now, law firms and their clients insofar as Gen AI is concerned. And you're right, this is not something that people aren't aware of. Everyone is aware of it. Clients are aware of the fact that the application of Gen AI in the proper way should improve efficiency and should drive down the cost of delivery. Law firms equally applying logic recognize that that is the likely outcome. But when asked the question, who is going to derive the benefit of that efficiency? In other words, the commercial benefit of the application of the technology. 68% of clients surveyed by LexisNexis said, we expect and we will expect our law firms to restructure their pricing model to deal with the efficiencies that are delivered by Gen AI. In response to the same question, law firms said only 18% of law firms said that they would be actually looking to restructure their rates in a way that would suit the client. 
And in more than 30% said that they would actually be retaining the financial benefits for themselves. Now, in our first episode, we debated the issue as to whether you have an obligation to deliver services as cost effectively to your client as, as, as possible. But the short point is, is that if your clients are expecting you to restructure your rates and you say, thanks very much, but we are a highly successful firm, we're going to keep those that financial benefit to ourselves to protect our business model. Well, I would suggest that's probably the last conversation you're going to have with that client. And secondly, and more importantly, if your competitors are recognizing the opportunity that the technology delivers to them to change the way they are delivering services, and in doing so, drive down the cost of delivery to their clients, but at the same time, protect their margins. In other words, they're doing the proper work around the commercial model and the implications of the technology, they will accelerate away from you. They will have an entrenched position with the clients and their financial success will be that much greater. So clients, I do believe, will drive a lot of the change. I think there will be resistance to it in a number of firms because they are so successful and you will see hubris delaying the changes that are required and some firms simply won't change quick enough. But in circumstances where, and again, let's just look at a practical example. I'm the CEO of a FTSE 100 client. I have access to all the information that we are talking about at the moment. I see the impact that generative AI is having across various sectors. More importantly, I can see all the research suggesting that generative AI is going to have a real impact on knowledge-based sectors. In my company, we use external uh, service providers, external legal firms, and I've got a large internal legal function. My cost of legal services every year is $200 million. As the CEO, more likely to be the CFO, but let's assume it's the CEO, what's one of the first things that I will be doing? I will be saying to my general counsel, generative AI should be making you more efficient, it should be making you more effective at delivering your service to the business. But very importantly, what are you doing to ensure that our external legal, uh, legal firms, those that are on our panel, are applying the technology in a way that drives down their cost of delivery? So I'm going to give you a mandate. As my general counsel, within the next 12 to 24 months, I want to see a reduction in external legal spend of 25 to 30%. That's not saying we're going to have less work. What it is saying is, I want to see the efficiencies that the technology can deliver. And that goes past straight on to the external legal firms. They are going to have to respond and they should be getting ahead of it rather than waiting for the clients to actually dictate to them the pace of change and effectively disrupting their business in a way that they're not ready for. So, to me, it's the commercial issues that need to be considered rather than it is just the technology. Yeah, and I'm going to quickly shamelessly plug a podcast that I'm quite a fan of yet. It's uh, the podcast Leadership 2.0. And if you want to dig a little bit more into hubristic leadership and hubris and how it interacts with leaders, do check out their recent episode titled Hubristic Leadership. And it's an interview with Professor Eugene Sadler-Smith out of the University of Surrey. 
I think that that really serves at a ni- as a nice foundation on which we're going to build our next episode, where we're going to look at the pricing implications of how Gen AI, Gen AI is going to shape the industry. Because the billable hour, as you've just alluded to there, it can't continue in the way that it has. And we're not saying throw it out the window because the industry really is built on the billable hour. And I think a lot of clients would receive that knowledge with a little bit of trepidation and a little bit of fear because everyone likes really to default to what they know. So we're by no way, shape or form suggesting just get rid of it because that's going to lead to more chaos than is needed. But it is something that firms need to look at very, very closely. And very quickly. And very quickly, indeed. I think, though, to wrap this episode up and to to draw a bow on it, Gen AI and emergent technologies, and I'm going to say that as a broad sweeping statement because I think we'll find that this is the catalyst that leads to many an innovation across the technology sector, is going to change the law sector. And indeed, as you mentioned there, not just law firms, but professional service firms in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine yet. But that isn't to say that we shouldn't start making the moves to prepare ourselves and to position ourselves in a way that we can actually very quickly adapt and respond to these. And another shameless plug that I'm going to do is with regard to strategic leadership and implementing strategy as strategy should be implemented. And that's going to be seen in our upcoming uh, leadership special edition publishing at the end of February. So do check out that via our links, uh, LinkedIn or our website. Rob, any final words before we close up and anything that you really want to have our listeners leave with to really start to question this? From my perspective, you know, having been in the industry for more than 30 years, I see this as an incredible opportunity. This is something that the sector has been thinking about for a long time. I think there has been at the back of everyone's minds, there has been a recognition of the fact that the traditional model is not something that is likely to sustain itself you know, forever. And I think that the opportunity that this gives the professional services sector and the legal sector in particular to modernize itself and to make itself more relevant to the way in which business is currently done, the way in which society is currently moving is extraordinary. This is not a story about doom and gloom. This is not a story about the end of anything. It is the story about the end of something if we don't react to it and we don't actually move past our hubris, having been so successful for so long. But if you think of the young talent coming into the industry, if you think of the non-traditional talent coming into the industry that has a real desire to assist the sector in driving change and to deliver something that is modern, fit for the future, and is progressive. It is an extraordinary opportunity for leadership and for partners just to take stock and say, where do we want to be in three, five, 10 years? For me, it's more about where do we want to be in three years, not 10 years, because that's too slow. An incredible opportunity. It is really exciting Um, And it's fascinating to be in the sector and in a sector that is going through such fundamental change, um, because it's not something that many people have the opportunity to see. Two things there. I definitely think that a future episode needs to look at, I think, the education front there. You make mention of the up and coming talent. I think education is one of the fantastic ways in which 
people can can really sort of start to drive change. And I mean both education from a university perspective, but even looking into your own firm, look towards executive education packages, look towards upskilling those that are up and coming in your firm. That is such an important element that I think is quite often overlooked because people just sort of get in the groove and then it becomes an efficiency play and an operationalization play rather than a true forward-thinking strategic play. Another thing that you made mention there is again changing the mindset and that's another episode that i think we will bring to you which will be on the psychology of leadership and we'll try get an, an incredible guest there to discuss and i have a few people in mind but i won't i won't spoil the surprise just yet but do join us next week when we discuss the billable hour and the financial implications that are currently facing the sector as we close this episode we want to thank you our listeners for joining us through the ever-changing landscape of professional strategy Remember, the world of professional services is continuously evolving and success lies in anticipating and adapting to these changes. Our conversations here are designed to stimulate debate, encourage questions and shed some light on the conversations the sector should be having. This is the Aurelian Future Strategy Podcast, where the future of professional strategy comes into focus. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you more cutting-edge insights in our next episode.